The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. We are continuing in our Curious series today, and uh, I have been tasked with the question of hermeneutics, which is a big fancy term that I think frightened Vince, which is why he gave me that question. No, that's not it. Uh, We actually did get several questions um, from uh, that sort of all pointed towards similar things. I have to pull it up on my phone where I had I was going to read it because I thought it was so well written. Uh, So we have a a lot of different questions that came in, but this one is sort of the one that I'm answering directly, and I'm going to tie other things into it. How do we know which promises in the Bible are for today, for us, versus for a specific person or specific set of people in the past? A lot of often quoted verses seem very good in principle, but are not necessarily actual promises. And then they go on to... Uh, give some verses that they wanted us to talk about, and I'm going to address those verses as well. So, uh, as you turn with me, we're going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, which is a little bit of a bizarre passage for me to go with, but you will see why I selected it for today. Um, And uh, we will begin that. So, if you're one who likes to have a title to your message, the title of this message is Questions in Quadrature. Questions in quadrature. And in case you were not a spelling bee champion, I'm going to spell that word for you. Quadrature is spelled Q U A D R A T U R E. And you would not think that I would begin my sermon without a fancy word in it, so that's what that's my fancy word of the day is quadrature. Now, this sermon finds its sort of structural origin in uh, an article that Al Mohler wrote uh, many years ago in 2005 called Theological Triage. But we're going to do hermeneutical quadrature today because we have, instead of three levels, we have four levels. Now, for those of you who want to impress your friends, family, and everyone else watching Jeopardy, quadrature has four definitions. Quad, four, it's funny. Okay, so... Uh, There's four definitions for the word quadrature. Okay, so quadrature is a precise division and relay of an object in, sorry, let me start that again. The three-dimensional precise relationship of two objects in a 90-degree phase from one another in terms of astronomy or in terms of harmonics. Two, a method of minimizing errors in approximating the curve of a slope Three, an illusionistic style of painting perspective found in the Baroque and Romantic period. And four, a a simple-to-state problem with an impossible answer. And I thought that was an an excellent word to describe my task for today. It's kind of going to be all over the place. And in the end, I'm not sure I can give you an answer. Okay, so... In first, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 5 together uh, as we will. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, and younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she, is less, if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation of good works. That is, she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has, and devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Beside that, 
they learned to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. But if any believing woman has relatives in her... Who, Relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and a laborer deserves his wages. Do not Admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, and do not partake in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. But no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your, the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Also, good works are conspicuous, but even those that are not cannot remain hidden. All right, so you're thinking, that's a weird passage in 1 Timothy. Why are we starting with that? Because I have a rather complicated question for us to answer, which is, how do we know about the commands and the promises whether they apply to only the people of their original audience or whether they apply to all of us. And this is a vital question that we as believers must understand because when we read this book, we need to know how to apply it to our lives. And a lot of the problems we've had in the 2,000 years of the church is when people either don't apply what they're supposed to apply or apply something that doesn't matter to them, right? So we need to get our framework set to understand that. So I'm going to use 1 Timothy 5 because it has that particular verse in the end, drink a little wine with your water, which is such a bizarre concept. And again, I go back to my Southern Baptist existence. Uh, the joke in the Southern Baptist Church is uh, if an Anglican and a Baptist walk into a bar, my wife told me this joke this week, so I'm going to use it. An Anglican and a Baptist walk into a bar, and the Baptist said, oh, that's what this looks like on the inside. Okay, for those who are like, you can go ask other people, whether, if you have questions about why that should be funny to you, then you can ask me, and so it's fine. Uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, the other joke that I heard from someone else, one of my friends from seminary was, why did Baptists like wearing masks this year? they could go to the bar and no one would recognize them. <laughs> Got a little bit more laughs on that one. Okay, so. Now, the issue is, what do we do with that verse? Is Paul saying, do, drink a little wine with the water, is he talking to only Timothy? Or is he writing to all of us? And that may seem like a silly question to you, but it's no more silly than whether you were supposed to eat shrimp cocktail or not. Right? Some of you don't have a problem eating bacon, but God said in his word that you are forbidden from being in his assembly if you do. So how we deal with the Bible and how we apply it to our lives is of utmost importance. In the end, all that we know of Christ and all that we know of the church and of his kingdom is in the book. So we need to understand how to read it. Okay, so questions in quadrature. So we're going to have, I'm going to say there are four levels of interpretation that we can apply to the scripture. And this applies whether we're talking about the rules in the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books, or whether we're talking about the promises that we see in the prophets, or whether we're talking about the commands that we see in the New Testament. These four levels apply to all of it, okay? And as a good Baptist pastor trainee that I was, I am going to alliterate today. So, these are your letters. Again, some of you don't understand that joke, but Katie and I think it's really funny. Okay, so, the first level are the laws. And the laws are the ones that are lasting, okay? 
So laws are lasting principles or statements or commands that do not change, whether we're talking about the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, or the Greek Bible, the New Testament, whether we're talking about before Jesus, after Jesus, or today, okay? Now, the equivalent of what we can think about these interpretations is what we might call theology or dogma. What are the principles of the faith that you must believe in order to be a believer, right? This is a vital question in our day and age. Many people on the internet are discussing how they are deconstructing their faith, how they are rethinking what the Bible says and rethinking what the church has taught them. And I have said before, that is not in and of itself a sinful activity, but it is a dangerous one. It is one that we must do so with much care and concern. All right, so if we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, what verses could we use to sort of exemplify the idea of a lasting law? And I'm going to point you to verses 19 through 25, and we're going to skip over 23. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, as those who persist in sin rebuke them in the presence of all, so they may, the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, this is an example of a lasting law, because this is the principle that finds its basis in the law of Moses and shows itself to be an axiom of truth that is going to last regardless. Okay? So, if we go back to the first five books of the Bible, we can see over and over again this idea of character mattering more than skill, right? Particularly when we look at the character of the priest, of the character of the judge, the character of the king, the character of the prophet, the character of the Messiah, the character of the people, the character of the kingdom, over and over and over and over and over again, we emphasize this. Now, if you want to do a cross-comparison, I will point you to Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, and 19, verse 15, in which the idea of you will not hold someone guilty of a charge unless they have two or three witnesses to the fact, right? So that's, that's the, the thread that's connecting us at a linguistic level, but at the deeper conceptual level, we have the idea of who are these people that we are supposed to appoint as leaders above us, right? And in the law of Moses that was for Israel as a political nation, that principle was how they were supposed to decide who was to be their judge, who was to be their king. And that thread goes through into the book of Kings in which the writer judges all of the kings by that standard. This king is good, this king is bad, whether because on the basis of how they hold to the law of God. And here we see in 1 Timothy chapter 5 the principle of the elder of the church, the one who is supposed to be the leader of the local body, the equivalent, by the way, of that Old Testament judge. Because the king may be far away. The priest is going to be in the temple. But the judge who lives in your village with you is the political leader who's going to help you to decide everything from whether someone moved your crops to whether we're going to burn you as a heretic. And in the same way, we should approach eldership or leadership in the church. And we at this church take a very slow process of doing that. We do not 
appoint people spontaneously. We examine them thoroughly in order to endow them or appoint them with leadership. And I will speak about my own experience in this. So I was earlier this year appointed to be an elder of this church. And it was a process that took many years of examination culminating in basically an interview with everyone who would be concerned in this church. And although we did not have an open forum where you could all bring your accusations to Vince and Jordan about me, there was a process in which that was that opportunity was given to you. So that if there was found anything wanting in my character, any concern whatsoever, including whether my wife was concerned about me or whether I was concerned about my wife, we examined it to its completion. And I don't say that to sort of puff myself up. I say that to point out that many do not take that level of concern with appointing leaders over themselves. Much of the problem we see in our society, whether we're talking about Christianity, whether we're talking about the secular political realm, whether we're talking about which people you are following on TikTok or Instagram, we do not take a lot of concern in our society about the people we follow. He takes a drink of water for dramatic pause. <laughs> you need to think about that. The Bible points out that the character of someone is revealed by their actions. And I don't care how skilled they are, how knowledgeable they are, how flamboyant or charismatic they are, character matters more. And so that is a principle that we can carry through from the past to the present to the future. Now, let me help you have maybe another dimension to think about this. Because when we look at these laws, we must also understand that every time a rule or a command is given, there is a responsibility, a right and a revelation. See, I told you I was going to alliterate today. There is a responsibility, something you are held to, a right, something that is given to you, maybe a privilege or an opportunity itself, and a revelation, a way in which we can see God. Now, let me give an example of something that in the Hebrew Bible was a law that has now been abrogated in the New Testament. So again, I used a fancy word. Let me define that word for you. Abrogated is what we talk about when we say a law no longer applies to us, right? This is the whole, can I eat bacon and shrimp cocktail, uh, or am I going to be sinning against God, right? So the principle I'm going to give here is one that was abrogated even before we got out of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 1 through 6, we have what is called the law of the outsider. And the law of the outsider governed who could be in the community, as in the religious community of Israel. So let me read it to you. No one who is a eunuch may enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor from Mesopotamia to curse you, but the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the cursing into blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or prosperity all your days forever. So there are three groups of people who could not be part of Israel. One of them was bodily. One of them 
was in relationship to their birth, and one of them was in the relationship of their ethnicity. And now, guess what happens? Not many years after that law is given, they forget it. Because it doesn't matter anymore in a few generations. It wasn't even 10 generations that they waited. Before we started this series, we were working through the book of Ruth. And Ruth is from where? Moab, right? And she marries who? Boaz, who's a nice, very nice Israelite boy, right? And they have a son whose name is Obed, and he has a son whose name is Jesse, and he has a son whose name is David. So in three generations, guess what happens? David not only gets to enter the assembly of the Lord, he gets to be called the one to whom God will show peace. And God says to him, I will appoint you and your children to be on the throne forever. So not only do they get to be in the assembly, he gets to be the head of the assembly, he gets to be the head of the nation, and his lineage, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, are blessed by God. So guess who gets to have the authority to abrogate God's law? God. I don't know if that was a shocker to you, but God can give us principles and tell us they are forever, and then he cannot change his mind. He can make an exception. So the exception made to us is that we do not live in an ethnic nation. We live in a spiritual kingdom. And so the rule does not apply to us. Okay? Now, I know that's going to be a hard principle, and you're going to think, well, okay, I don't know, Andrew. What are we going to do with that? Let me give you another example of that. How will we know if the rule has been abrogated or not? Well, it has to do with understanding, if I may borrow from C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the deeper magic of God. I point that scene out because that scene is all about God showing us how his law will be fulfilled. For those of you who are not familiar with that book, shame on you, you should go read it. In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there is a doorway to Narnia, the wardrobe. There is a witch, the white witch, and there is a lion, Aslan. And in case it wasn't clear to you, Gerald Tolkien says, the allegory is a little bit too thin. The witch is Satan. The lion is Jesus. And at a momentary point in the book, Edmund, who betrays his brothers and sisters and the whole nation for candy, that's what Turkish delight is, is under the law to be killed for being a traitor. And Aslan said, no, I will take his place. And the witch says, you can't do that. No one can take his place. And he says to her, which do not teach me what it says in the deep magic. I was there when it was written. If I can undo the allegory now. God can change his rules when it pleases him for his glory. He can change everything if he wants to. So, principle one, when he doesn't, then it's important that we understand why he doesn't. And if he does, it's important to understand why he did. All right, so let me give you an example. So we're going to go over this one. What was the first principle? The first principle was those that are a eunuch will not enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, the principle behind that was that Israel was to emulate what was true of the priest. And then over in Leviticus, it talks about all the characteristics of the priest. He can't have any blemish in his body as a priest. 
If there's anything wrong with him, he can stay within the temple precinct, but he cannot serve as a priest because he is the representative of God to Israel, and Israel is the representative of God to the world. And so those that were physically different, physically changed, could not enter in the assembly of the Lord. However, in Isaiah chapter 56... He changes the application. For thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. And I'm going to skip, and it says, let not the foreign who is, foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, sure, the Lord will keep me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a withered branch. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who keep the things that it please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And that last part is important because remember, what was the rule? They shall be cut off forever. And God said, guess what? I'm going to forever uncut them off. And that's funny because they're talking about eunuchs. Okay, so do you get it? It's like a funny pun. God is really snarky sometimes. Okay, so God says, yeah, you know what? I made that rule, but that rule I'm not going to apply anymore because now I'm doing a different thing, a new thing a thing that fulfills my glory better. And again, for our comprehension, you may be like, what? Are you telling me there's rules that last forever and they don't last forever? What does that mean? And I'm gonna go, you need to read the gospel. There's a lot of crazy stuff in the gospel, right? Like I always love when people wanna debate me in theology because people wanna come and they wanna talk about these little points of theology. And I'm like, okay, First of all, here's my rule. When you explain to me how the Trinity works and the incarnation work, then we can talk about whether this or that is true. By the way, we've had 2,000 years. We have 66 books, and nobody can explain those two things. Even Paul goes up into heaven and sees the whole Mac thing. He comes down and goes, I don't know. I don't know. Jesus is trying to explain to us in the book of John... How does it work? He's like, it's like the wind. All right. <clears throat> that's funny, because he's like, that's really his explanation of how does, how, does, how does God move in the spirit? He goes, it's like the wind. So Nicodemus, where do you want to eat? He literally doesn't answer the question. Okay, so, so even Jesus knows, but he can't explain it to us. It's like a frame of reference thing. Anyway, so, all right. So there are laws that are true. And they are passing over all of us, but their application may differ. And you're thinking, okay, where is he going with this? Let's talk about the gospel now. In the original law, in Leviticus, when you sinned, you had to bring a sacrifice. That sacrifice had to be an animal. It had to be an unblemished animal. It had to be an animal unto which you gave your sin upon their head, and then you sacrificed them, and their death atoned you. And then... Jesus came along and he changed the application. And instead of an animal sacrifice, he was the sacrifice. Instead of an unblemished mammal, he was the sinless one. Instead of being slaughtered by a human, he gave himself up for us and his death atones us forever. The law still stands. We just changed the application. All right, so that was the first level. That was the easy one. Now we're going to get harder. The second level are the regional rules. So we had the lasting laws, and now we have the regional rules. This is the one where most of the rules that we see in the Bible fall under, I would say. So the, the equivalent of this is what we might think of as denominations, or nations, right? So we can look at Israel as a people who, into which we are grafted through the gospel, but they are also a people that was a particular, specific political entity in history that has their own constitution, and we have a different one, okay? So there are denominations, 
where we differ about things. Now, ultimately, we can't differ about the dogma about what makes us Christians. We may differ about how we practice that Christianity, the regional rules, right? So that might come up in the way you baptize believers, when you baptize believers, how you take communion, when you take communion, whether we're supposed to be wearing hats right now or not, right? Now, the funny part about that is that all in 2,000 years, when we should have been contending for the faith, we've been spending more time as a church fighting over the color of the carpet. That's why there are so many different kinds of Christian churches today. And the problem that we've had in recent decades is that we have made it so divided amongst ourselves that there are many who call themselves Christians who do not follow the deeper magic. And there are many who think they are following the deeper magic when instead they are simply doing the practices of men and women. They're following traditions. Okay, so again, going back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, give my example. My example here is verses 3 through 16. I'm not going to read it out for the sake of time. It's the law of the widow. If a widow is this old and this condition, this way, then the church can take care of her. But there's all sorts of people that are excluded, right? If you're too young, you can't get supported by the church because you're supposed to go get remarried, like Ruth. If you have family of your own, that is, you have sons or daughters or grandsons or granddaughters who can take care of you, then you don't get enrolled. If you have someone who can take care of you in society, then you don't get enrolled. So the only people the church has to monetarily, in this case, support are the people who are left with no one to take care of them. That doesn't mean that we didn't want to take care of everyone else. They just had another option. Now, do we have to do that in our society? And the answer is a giant flashing neon question mark. Because the answer is, maybe? Because our society is different. We have selected as a society to create a safety net system for the poor to take care of them. Now, we can have a debate about whether we as the church should be doing that instead, but we have that in place, which is why we don't, as this church body, monetarily support any widows. Because we have another system to take care of them. And so they are, by that principle, excluded from us being responsible for them. That doesn't mean that we are not responsible for them should they come along. Now, the thing that's the problem with this, the most of the rules fall into that. Most of those rules you're going to read in Leviticus and Numbers of Deuteronomy where your eyes start rolling back in the head during somewhere in February and we get there into your Bible reading plan. You know, and you got to push on through. And you're trying to figure out, like, how does, like, you know, how, how am I going to find three birds and some hyssop to cleanse my house of black mold? That's a whole chapter, by the way, in Leviticus is what happens when, like, you know, your basement gets too moldy. Um, uh, it's, it's really fun, so we should go through that sometime. Anyway, so, but those rules were there in place because of something God was doing. Remember... The principle was that Israel was representing God to the nations around them. So he said, this is how I want you to live, down to the level of how you clean your house from black mold. And if that doesn't tell you that God is concerned about every single detail of your life, I don't know how much more you need. And we need to think about that. All right, so in the principle of those, those that idea of one husband, I'm just going to pull some examples out of the law of the widow here. So one of the examples is that she has to be the wife of one husband. By the way, that is the same that is also true in 1 Timothy and in Titus about the elder. He has to be the husband of one wife. This idea of marital fidelity is very important to God. It's a theme that he runs through all the prophets. Okay, we're not going to touch on that because that's going to take me a whole another two hours. And the pot roast is probably already burning in the crock pot right now. Anyway, so... But in Leviticus chapter 21, it talks about the image of the priest. The priest himself when he served, could not marry a widow. He had to marry a woman who had never had a husband. She couldn't be divorced, she couldn't be widowed, she couldn't be, you know, anything. Because everything represented 
God to the people, including who he married. And same goes here. And the idea of 60 years old comes from another part of the Levitical law in the book of Numbers chapter 8 when it talks about when the Levites get to retire. I don't know if you didn't know, but Israel did have a social security plan. And at the age of 50, you aged out and didn't have to do the heavy lifting anymore. Right? So I'm eight years away from having to carry anything at this church. Just that you know, you've got eight years for me to lift the ladders around here and then I'm done. Because I will quote chapter and verse to you. Okay, now, here is where the first of the examples is where we're going to talk about it. So, we all as a Christian society love, love Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And I'm going to sadly break your heart and tell you that doesn't apply to you because you are not in Babylonian exile right now. If you go back and read the context of that, the context is Jeremiah says, don't just sit around weeping by the river that the temple has fallen, build a house, find a wife, have some kids, plant a vineyard, settle down, you're gonna be here for a while. But... I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Guess what the hope and the future were in Jeremiah? That you are going to have a house with a vineyard, not that you were going to go back to the city. And so why am I breaking your heart? Because we love that verse. We want to, you know, put it in a little painting and, you know, I don't know, get a vinyl and stick it on our living room wall. Here's a better verse for you to stick on your living room wall. Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for good for those who are called according to my, I'm sorry, I messed it up, sorry. Here I am doing it from memory. Memory verse just failed me in my head. I have to finish the end. All right, so go from the scripture, sorry. Find it again, sorry. I was doing it from memory and now it's Those who are called according to my purposes. I'm a bad Bible scholar. I'm sorry. I forgot my verse in the middle of the talk, right? Now, that's a better verse because that verse is applying to you, the church. Now, I bring that up not to make fun of you if you love that verse. If you, you know, have that tattooed in your back, we can talk about it, you know. Tattooing was against the law in the first place, so you already were one strike against you. Now, if you have that verse, you love that verse, just this, I, I'm going to offer you a different verse. The idea is not that you have that verse, it's that you understand the context of the regional rule. I will tell this funny story. When I was 12 years old, I started doing the Bible reading plan that my father and my mother had done. Uh, so I started reading the Bible for myself, got from the Leviticus, it talks about that you're not supposed to eat bacon and shrimp, and so I went to my parents and told them, I cannot have shrimp and bacon anymore. And they said, why? And they said, because the Bible told me I can't do it. And they looked at me crazy. And I said, no, I have to follow what the Bible says. You taught me my entire life that I have to do what the Bible tells me. And my parents were like, okay. That lasted for about three weeks, by the way. Till we went to Shoney's and I wanted shrimp. Now, the point is, is that my parents looked at me crazy because they're thinking, you don't have to do that because that's not part of your representation of God into the world. And that's the way I want you to think about it. When you get these verses and you're thinking, huh, does this apply to me? The way you need to think about it, the way you distinguish whether it is a lasting law or a regional rule is, does it affect my representation to the world? Now you may say, yes. I'm going to be an ethical Christian vegan who does not eat animals because that is how I represent God to the world. And I'm going to tell you, okay, just like my parents did, because I like bacon. It lasted three weeks, that's what I'm saying. So we can differ in how we apply it, but we shouldn't let that difference divide us into denominations, Okay. So that's the first thing. Now, some other examples we might have is John 14, when it says, pray anything in my name, it will be given to you. Right? And that's a nice verse that we can hold on to. The parallel to that in the Old Testament is Psalm 37, 3 through 5, which is, 
Set first the Lord in all of your ways, and everything that you desire he will give to you. That was my paraphrase, by the way. Now, again, the context is important. God doesn't say that if you just pray, he's going to give you a Lamborghini and a million dollars, because if he did, I would not be working where I'm working. (laughs) I would not be working, is what I'm telling you. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way because of the first part of the verse, which is, set your mind on my ways, and I will give you the desires of your heart. Guess what? The desires of your heart, if you set your mind on his ways, are his ways. And everything you need to do to get that. Right? That's the context. So again, it's not that the verse is problematic. It's not that... I'm telling you to go home and pull all your vinyl things off the wall and burn them and, you know, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, go and study what the verses are saying and try to understand how they apply to us. Right? And just in case you're worrying about the the bacon thing, let me give you two places in the New Testament that tell us that we can eat bacon. First of all, I'm not even including this one. Jesus says that we can eat bacon, but, you know, and Jesus says it, and I can do it. The better one in my mind is Acts 15, chapter 19 through 21, that was called the Jerusalem Council. They come together. This is a time in which we have Jewish believers that are in that sort of first generation, the ones who had walked with Jesus, have now been evangelizing Gentiles, and now we have Gentile believers, and their cultures are coming into conflict because Jews don't eat pork, And Gentiles did. And the Gentiles are also living in a society in which, you know, everything is an idol. You had to burn incense to the emperor, to your mom, to the doorpost, everything in the Greco-Roman world. And now they don't know what they're supposed to do with all of that. And they said to the Jerusalem Council, here are the three principles we want you to do. We don't want you to worship idols. We don't want you to participate in sexual immorality. And we want you to eat food in a certain level of Purity, which at that time they said you couldn't eat animals that have been strangled and you can't eat the blood of animals. Because all of these things have been taught since time immemorial because the law of Moses has been read in every city. Now again, that dismisses about 600 of the 613 commandments that are in the law of Moses when you do that. And another example is Romans 14. When Paul writes this church at Rome, again, you have a Jewish and a Gentile congregation together, and they're getting into cultural conflict, and they need to know what are the rules. And he says, one of you elevates a day above other, every other. The other day treats all the days the same. One of you will not eat the meat of sacrificed idols, but the other one of you doesn't have a problem with that. He says, here's the rule. Love is the law of God. Do everything in love for your neighbor so that the one who is weaker is taken care of by the one who is stronger until he himself is also strong. And that's a pun because guess what? Both of them are weak because they're fighting with each other about these cultural privileges. Ain't nobody strong. Okay, that's a, we'll do Romans later. Anyway, that's a whole, it's a whole funny thing. Again, Paul is also snarky, so I can be snarky. Because it's like, you know, Jesus is snarky, Paul's snarky, so I can be snarky. That's, that's the way, that's the principle I'm learning. Anyway, from this thing. all right. Now, so that was the top two. Now we're getting down to where we get into the squishy gray area. So this is my squishy general gray guidelines level is the third level. Okay. Now, this is two examples. The first example, in, uh, I have two examples from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, verses 1 and 2. Treat older people like fathers and younger men like brothers and older women like mothers and younger women like sisters. Now, that's a squishy general guideline because he doesn't tell us what that means. It goes into excruciating detail about which widows can and can't be on the roll, right? Doesn't tell us what it means to treat someone like a brother or sister. So that, I guess, doesn't... I don't know if that means we can pile drive you into the sofa... Or I'm supposed to, like, let you drive me to the mall? It doesn't tell us, right? Because the idea is, this is the way I want you to do it. Now go figure out how you want to apply that. Right? 
When you meet someone else, treat them in such a way. Now, that principle connects back up into 1 Timothy verse 4, 12. It says, because it connects to what Paul has written to Timothy. He says, Timothy, don't let them look down on you just because you're young, but treat the older men like fathers in love and conduct and in good works. Right? Just because someone is older than you doesn't mean they're smarter than you. Just because someone is younger than you doesn't mean they're dumber than you. But because you should be treating them as what? Older men like your father, older women like your mother, giving them respect. Younger men like your brother, younger women like your sister, treating them with love. Now, go and do it. Right? Okay, there we go. Another example from 1 Timothy chapter 5 is verses 17 through 18, in which Paul says, let me just read it to you. This is a little bit more. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, and he quotes two verses from Deuteronomy. Now, what's very interesting about the Deuteronomy verse is, do not muzzle the ox while it is threshing its grain, which comes immediately after a section about two people fighting over whether they get paid wages or not. Right? I told you God was snarky, right? He, was, he has this whole discussion in Deuteronomy chapter 25 about, make sure I've got my chapter right. Yes, chapter 25 about that you're supposed to pay people their wages. And then he says, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading its grain. So it's doing work for you. Let it eat. Now I bring that up because there are examples in which we do not do that for one another. And I'm not talking about that you'll be paying me a salary because I don't need you to pay me a salary. I'm talking about that we don't pay each other, as it says in Romans chapter 13, in love and honor and respect. Right. So I've been very careful, or at least I tried to be very careful, in this sermon to not mock other Christian leaders who I disagree with. And I do that because I owe them honor and love and respect even when I think they are in error. And here in 1 Timothy, it says, you are supposed to approach someone in error and train them up in love and conduct and good works, not treating them unjustly. So I'm not giving any specific examples of the culture. Remember, I went, I went through this and I was like, no, I can't say that. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, fine. Fine, I can't use that example. Anyway, so I'm just down to one page now. So, Another example we can use here, which is something that we struggle with in our culture, and by struggle with, I mean, I don't think some of you even thought about it, which is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul makes very explicit that women are supposed to cover their head when they come into the assembly of God. And I don't see anyone wearing a hat. Now, why does he say that? Because it is a cultural guideline of that society. See, if you go back to the context of 1 Corinthians, you understand that in Corinth, you had people who were going out of their way to throw off all of their cultural baggage to show how Christian they were. And so you had men and women acting inappropriately in their society, and Paul said, you need to stop that. And you need to stop that because it's getting in the way of how the gospel is being portrayed in your society. That you may have the freedom to do whatever you want in the gospel, but that doesn't actually give you the freedom to do whatever you want on behalf of the gospel. Let me say that again because I use two different prepositions. You have the freedom to do a lot of things in the gospel, but you don't have the freedom to do things on behalf of the gospel. Paul says, don't get, become a stumbling block, but let Christ being crucified be the stumbling block, right? So we need to think about their society. We need to think about that in the way we dress, in the way even to how we wear our hat or how we braid our hair or if we wear gold jewelry. That's the other examples for women that occur in the Bible. And it wasn't just women who need to think about that in our society. It's also men who need to think about that in our society. 
Some of y'all need to put the shirt on is all I'm saying. Okay, so, so those general guidelines fall into the category of church discipline, right? What they wear down the street at another church is not my concern unless I am having a discussion with them about how they are carrying themselves in society, which by the way is what all of the New Testament letters are, right? That's like Paul sitting in jail going, what do they do in Corinth now? All right, guys. Give me the scribe. Come on, let's do it. All right. All right, guys, here we go. Boom. And it's like, you just read the New Testament. It's always, you have to read it really funny because he's just like, guys, I already wrote you a letter about this. Now I have to write 2 Corinthians to you because you didn't get the first time. <laughs> you know, so it's really funny. Anyway, so. <clears throat> but we need to understand that we are holding each other accountable, not to outward rules and regulations, but to an inward character of behavior is what we saw here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, the very lowest level are what we might call personal principles. Personal principles. And this is the verse that I got me to select this chapter, 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. Now, only, not only drink water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, I leave that very funny because that means that Timothy is trying to be a pastor in this church and he has an ulcer because of you people, right? And they do not have, you know, acid reflux medication or Maalox in the Greco-Roman Empire. So he's got a, you know, but he's also trying to hold himself accountable. Now, and, I, and I think of that maybe as the flip side of that general guidelines idea, Some of you are getting a little bit too loose about your conformity to Christ's image in the world, and some of you are a little bit wrapped up and too tight around it. And Paul is like, Timothy, I get it. You're just drinking water. You just need to, bro, here, take some medicine. Your stomach's hurting. Now, I find it funny because that's one of those verses that makes me wonder if Paul knew that he was writing the letter for all of us over 2,000 years. Because he's literally just writing to his student, Timothy, and saying, Timothy, take an antacid tablet and calm down. I don't think he meant that for all of us to read 2,000 years later. That's one of those questions. You're all going to talk about, like, you know, go to Adam and Eve and ask them about, like, what it's like not to be, have a belly button. I don't care about that. I care, I'm going to go up to Timothy and be like, Timothy, Paul. Did you know that the letter was going to go to all of us? And he was like, if I did, I would have said his name in the verse. I mean, I didn't really. <sighs> just like, I mean, I was writing to my friend. It's just on the side. The scribe put it in. It's supposed to be a footnote. Anyway, whatever. So <clears throat> um, there's a lot of funny other, there's other examples of that. So these were letters written to real people. And there are real people who are struggling with how to apply all this. That's what I'm trying to get at. Timothy is trying to do his best job as a young minister in this town with all these crazy people doing crazy things around him. And he's getting stressed out. And Paul is saying to him, take some medicine. And I want you to understand that that may be something that God is saying to you in a verse. Right? We get all bent out of shape sometimes about, you know, like, again... The most grew up in the church world in which you had to check the length of your shorts with your hands, and God forbid that you were a tall man with short arms. <laughs> right? Because you're like, it's past my fingertips. And they're like, sinner. Right? Or if you're the short girl with long arms. And you might as well just wear capri pants all the time, right? Like we make these rules up and we get so wrapped up about the rules that we don't communicate the relationship, which brings me back to where I was starting. So many people in our society are deconstructing their faith and the faith because of our rules and not because of their relationship. As in, they don't have a relationship. All they had was the rules. And when the rules failed to save them, they are left with nothing. Except bitterness. 
of sadness and isolation. So I don't want you to think of the Bible as a giant sledgehammer that's coming down on your head every day. I want you to think of it as an owner's manual to which you have to apply its rulings. Some of us don't have to know exactly how the windshield wiper gets to the windshield wipers. We just need to know where the button is. Some of us like to fry the transmission in our car. Steve's looking right at me as I say this. Because they don't change their oil often enough. Guilty. Anyway, actually, I don't know. We'll talk about that. A couple months ago, I had to call Steve, and he had to come help me because my car literally just went, nope, not anymore. We're done. So, and I still, I have no idea. I don't know if we've ever figured out what it was. I don't know what it is. I was like, it's steaming, it's smoking. The magic is not happening, Steve. Anyway, so, so, you know, some of us needed to read the owner's manual more is what I'm trying to say of that example. Okay. So when you have a problem, you go to the owner's manual in your car. And then when you don't know that, then you go to the person who's expert at how the car works to figure out how to do it. That's how the faith works. When you have a question, go to the book. If you don't understand the book, you go ask an older believer, not necessarily chronologically order, but older in the faith, and you ask them how to apply it. But in the end, you're the one that has to drive the car. Okay? So there are lasting laws that we're all going to tell you, or at least should tell you, This is what you have to do. This is what you have to believe. Then there are like regional rules in which we might say, this is how we do it, but it's not going to burden your faith to do it. And then there's general guidelines. This is what we're supposed to do. Now we have to figure out how to do it. And then there's the personal principles. This is what I do. Maybe you want to do that too. Now, undergirding all of this is the gospel, the deeper magic. And as we read the Bible, we have to understand that the lens by which we interpret Scripture ultimately is the person, life, and work of Christ. And the bad news is that the rules couldn't save us right? If you read it, it tells you, do all these things and you're good. And for hundreds of years, people believed it. Not understanding that the rules were pointing them to they were never going to fulfill the rules. You're never going to get all the black mold out of your house with some hyssop and pigeon blood. If you've tried, it doesn't work that way. You're never going to get all the sin out of you. In fact, that's what Jesus comes to them with the Sermon on the Mount and says, You have heard it said, this rule. But I tell you, the problem is this bigger issue in your heart. And you're supposed to hear him and go, we're never going to do that. There's no way. That's not possible, man. There's no possible way for me to do it. And he says, yes, you can't do it, but I can. And in my life is going to be the unblemished, sinless sacrifice that's going to be better than the blood of bulls and goats to atone you. And all I need is for you to let me exchange it with you. I've already paid for the donuts. This morning I was going to get donuts with my family. We pulled up and they said, oh, the person in front of you paid for us. And I was like, oh, that's so nice. I'll pay for the people behind us. We were for the people behind us to pay. And they were getting two cups of coffee. So this person in front of me paid for my six donuts, three things of bacon, three waters, because I have a baby and a wife who eat a lot of food. And I paid for two small macchiatos. Right? So, so I got the better end of the deal <laughs> in all ways. Like, even I'm trying to do my good deed and being part of like the chain of love. And I'm like, they're like, it'll be $5. And I'm like, Weeks. So, 
So all Jesus is asking is for us to exchange it. He has already paid the price. We just have to say that we accept it. Probably a little bit more complicated than that. That's one of those deeper theology people people like to fight me about with. But right now, that's where we're just going to talk about. Now, if that's not happened for you, then today is the opportunity for you to say yes. If that has happened to you, then we're now going to enter in a time of reflection through communion about that. So let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word in depth. We thank you for the opportunity to understand as much as we are humanly possible why you made the rules the way you did. And ultimately, you did it for our good, which is your glory. And in older times, you had to teach us how to live our lives all the way down to how to clean our house. But now you ask us to go to a higher principle, to transform the inside of our lives and let it reflect your principles of redemption. We pray, Lord, that you would glorify your name in the way we read your word and apply your word and live as the representatives of your word in this world today. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.